Morning, Saints. Morning, Sinners. I want to start off with something a little different this morning. Psalm 46 says, God's our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult, God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help it when the morning dawns and the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Think about that. Father God, we, many of us are desperate because we actually we just need to hear from you. As some of us are lonely, some are broken. Some ask the question, is one more day even possible? And God, we need you to touch us in a fresh and new way. For those who are here and they are in a storm and they're being tossed about, we need you to stabilize all things. We're so distracted. So my prayer is that you would center us and you would focus us and you'd clean out all the voices around us and let us hear from you because we need it. We want our lives to be everything you want them to be. And we want our desires to be in line with yours. Give us these moments, something that will transform us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know how people uh, ask you, hey, how you doing? And we always say, fine. I'm not fine. I play hockey every Saturday morning. Uh, or a resemblance of that. And uh, so I get a call last night to be a ringer for another hockey team. And I'm thinking, hey, yeah, it's not too bad. It's 9.45 at night. I could, I could go out and do this. Well, I just want everybody to know I'm not fine. I can't get out of bed. I can't lift my right arm above my shoulder. I, I'm not fine. That's what I've realized is I'm getting old. So... Uh, that's just the way it is. So don't ask me how I'm doing today, because I'm not fine. We find ourselves in the book of Matthew. It's a beautiful book. It's a great book. As a matter of fact, Matthew chapter 12 now is the pivotal chapter of what's going on. Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, he's been arrested. He's put into prison. And now what we see in this chapter is that the tide begins to turn against Jesus. The opposition is turning and turning up the heat. And what we see is it's the leaders of the Jewish uh, uh, parties, religious parties, and they step up their criticisms, and now they actively begin to make plans to destroy Jesus. But his, this theme of trying to destroy Jesus really starts from the beginning of Matthew. And we're now entering into the Advent season pretty soon. And at the very beginning of Matthew, we see that when Jesus was born, King Herod moved to destroy him. So Matthew has this theme running through the entire book, forcing his family, Jesus' family, to flee to Egypt. And so from chapter 3 then... We see Jesus coming out on the scene. He begins to challenge the religious groups, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. By the time we get to the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7, he's just basically trying to destroy people's confidence in their religion. Because that's what it was. It wasn't serving God. It was just doing religion. And he went after them. And he went after their rules. He went after their regulations. And in turn, they turn around and they begin to shoot back at Jesus in chapter 9. 
And the religious leaders, they accuse him in chapter 9 of blasphemy. They, they, they accuse him of spending his time with tax collectors and sinners. I love that. And they go so far as to say that he's even demon-possessed. And now we find ourselves um, in chapter 12. Jesus is constantly confronting the opposition with their sin, though. He's throwing it up. He's bringing it up in their faces. But they're unwilling to respond to his message of, of sin and salvation. And they stayed hardened in their sin and in their attitudes. And pretty soon, there are several moving phases in the reaction towards Jesus. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, there's this doubt. And then from doubt, they go to criticism. And then from criticism, they go to indifference. And now we come to basically open rejection playing out. And ultimately, blasphemy will be that another uh, accusation thrown at Jesus. They're filled with rage. They're filled with fury, with anger, with hatred. And as we approach this chapter, we'll see that they begin to plot his murder. It's a milestone chapter. Chapter 12, Matthew, pivotal point. Remember that when you're looking at your scriptures. Because the storm that ultimately leads to Jesus being crucified is now gathering here and picking up momentum. So we'll pick it up. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. This little sentence here is really filled with so much. Jesus and the boys, they're out walking on the Sabbath. They're walking through the field and it's mentioned, so why is this a big deal? Why, you know, what's so important about this? Well, I'll tell you. The Old Testament law simply said that Israel was to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, which means really to set it apart for God and his service. They could do everything they want on the other six days. Those were ordinary labor for six days. But on the Sabbath day, they were to stop. In fact, the Hebrew word Shabbat means to cease more than it means to rest. Some people say, well, it's rest. No, it actually means to stop, to cease. So their Sabbath then was the day where they stopped doing what they did on the other days. And uh, you'll remember when we did this in Genesis way back when, when God created the world on the seventh day, he rested. And so in Exodus, we see then God tells the people after they've come out of Egypt, take the seventh day, the Sabbath, and the day of ceasing and keep it holy. So that's when he institutes the Sabbath with the children of Israel. And although God rests on the seventh day, it wasn't because he was tired or exhausted. He celebrated the work of creation. He didn't make this commandment prior to the Mosaic law. It, there was no commandment of Sabbath prior to Exodus. And uh, when Moses gave the law, um, the, it was very clear that this is how we have to do it. And then it became special. It was like this covenantal sign between God and Israel. Because you need to listen very carefully because many people misunderstand this. The Sabbath commandment is, is one of the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20. We got that. But it's the only commandment that's a non-moral commandment. It's the only one that is a ceremonial command. It is the one of the Ten Commandments that was uniquely between God and Israel as a ceremonial rule. The other nine are all moral absolutes. And the reason we know this for sure is because when you get to the New Testament and you start beginning to read through the New Testament, every other command is repeated. Every one of the Ten Commandments is repeated except the one regarding the Sabbath. Isn't that interesting? 
And it's not repeated in the New Testament. Why? Because it was a unique sign, much like the circumcision was. It was a unique sign between God and Israel. And so at the time of of Jesus and his disciples, the Sabbath was, in fact, a ceremonial law. And, and so Jesus would honor the Sabbath. He was a good Jew. He, so you got to think about this. He's honoring the Sabbath, as would his disciples. And remember, Jesus knows the scriptures really well. And insofar as God intended it to be honored, that's what they were doing. And so the Pharisees, though, they added so many different ridiculous things to the Sabbath that it was almost impossible to keep it. The Sabbath, though, was the focus of the religious activity. And they had added so much stuff to that, that instead of it being a day of ceasing and a day of rest, it was actually an incredible day of burden for people. We don't see that, but here, let me expand on that. Last week, we looked at Jesus when he said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Well, the clearest illustration of that would have been on a Sabbath observance. When they came to the seventh day of the week, or Saturday as we know it, not Sunday, Saturday, the laws, the rules, the routines that they had had to keep, they had to keep certain laws, keep certain rules, keep certain routines on the Saturday, it made it actually more difficult for them to rest than it was to work the other six days. There was more work trying to rest than there was trying to work. You with me? So let me show you what I mean. In one section of the Talmud, which is a breakdown of the, the uh, um, uh, it's a commentary of the religious uh, rules of the Jews, there, there's 24 uh, chapters listing all the Sabbath laws. One rabbi spent two and a half years trying to understand just one of those chapters. And now if you ex- just try to e- extrapolate that, there's a lifetime of one man trying to figure out all the stuff he was supposed to do on the Sabbath. Now, for example... You couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet. Basically, you couldn't travel more than a kilometer from your house on, unless on Friday, now here's the rules, that you had planted some food 3,000 feet away. So if I wanted to go two kilometers somewhere on Friday, I would have to go and put some food at the 3,000-foot measures because when I did that and I had food there, that would become a home. Are you with me? You walking with me on this one? Because there was food there. And so now I could go my 3,000 feet. I can go on my one kilometer, and then I can go on to another one kilometer. Wherever there was a narrow street or an alley, if you put a rope or you put a wire or a board across from dwelling on one side to the dwelling on the other side, it now created an entrance. Therefore, the street was turned into a home. And now you can go another kilometer. All right? Things could be lifted up. Now, I like this one. Things could be lifted up or put down only from and to certain places. So you got to think about it. These are rabbis who are writing what you could and could not do. This is what the Talmud was all about. This is the laws that they began to put on people. So if you thought about this, you could lift something in a public place and you could put it down in a private place. You could lift it up in a private place and put it down in a public place. You could never, though, carry a burden that weighed more than a dried fig. Or you could carry something that weighed half a dried fig twice. If you threw an object in the air and caught it with your other hand, that was a violation of the Sabbath. If you caught it with the same hand, that was okay. If it was near, now this one was great, if it was near the Sabbath. So what the interpretation was is this, if you're out and you're eating 
And uh, Sabbath starts at sundown. So it, so they, it goes, if you're near Sabbath and you reached out for your food and the Sabbath overtook you, okay? So as soon as the time came in and you had food in your hand, you had to drop your food before you drew your arm back. Otherwise, you'd be carrying a burden on the Sabbath. Okay, a tailor couldn't carry a needle on the Sabbath lest he be tempted to stitch something that ripped. A scribe couldn't carry his pen lest he be tempted to write. A pupil couldn't carry his books because he might read. You couldn't examine anybody's clothing because you might find an insect there and kill it. Wool could not be dyed. Nothing could be sold or bought. Nothing could be washed. A letter could not be sent, even if you put it in the hand of a heathen for delivery. No fire could be lit. That's why even today some conservative Orthodox Jews have a time switch on their lighting system so the lights automatically go on when Sabbath comes. Cold water could be poured on warm, but warm water couldn't be poured on cold. You couldn't take a bath for fear the water would spill onto the floor and washed the floor as it fell off you. If there was a little candle, you couldn't blow it out. Chairs couldn't be moved because they tend to drag ruts across the ground. That's a violation. A woman couldn't look into a glass because she might see a gray hair and pluck it out. Jewelry couldn't be worn because it weighed more than a dried fig. And I suppose you could wear a dried fig, but it wouldn't be too attractive. That's the way I was looking at that one. These laws, they went on and on. I'm not done yet. You couldn't carry more grain in your hand than that would fit in a lamb's mouth. You couldn't leave a radish in salt because it will become a pickle. You could only spit into the rag, not on the ground. That's probably healthy. I can, I can understand that. You could only carry ink enough for two letters. Not letters to people, alphabetical letters. You could carry wax enough to fill a tiny hole. You could have a wad in your ear if you had an earache, but you couldn't have a false tooth in because then that's carrying a burden. So some things are commonly forbidden. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, tying them together, threshing, winnowing. Some of you farmers know what I'm talking about. Sifting, grinding, sifting with a sieve, kneading, uh, baking, shearing wool, washing wool, beating wool, dyeing wool, spinning wool, putting it in the weaver's uh, loom, making two threads, weaving two threads, separating two threads, making a knot, undoing it, sewing two stitches, tearing in order to sew two stitches, catching a deer, hunters, listen, or killing it. You couldn't skin it, you couldn't salt it, you couldn't prepare its skin, you couldn't scrape off its hair, cut it up. Uh, workers, you couldn't do, do any building, you couldn't pull down anything, you couldn't extinguish or light fire. You couldn't beat anything with a hammer, which is interesting. I guess they actually meant use a hammer. You couldn't carry a possession, and the list goes on and on and on. So here's a history lesson. Think about this. This is how serious, though, they were about keeping the observance of the law. This is how serious they are about the religion, about doing the works. In the time of Judas Maccabeus, it was the history time between the two testaments, between the Old and New Testament. The Greeks were dominating the people of Israel. Uh, it, it, there's one incidence where the forces of Antiochus uh, came against the Jews. 
It's recorded in, in the Apocrypha in the first in first Maccabees. The text says this. They answered them not, neither they cast a stone at them, nor stopped the places where they lay hid, but said, Let us all die in our innocence. Heaven and earth will testify for us that ye put us to death wrongfully. So they rose up against them in battle on the Sabbath, and they slew them with their wives, children, and their cattle, and the number of a thousand people. So Antiochus and his men came against the Jews, but because it was the Sabbath, they wouldn't lift a finger to defend themselves. So a thousand people were massacred that day because they chose to not lift a finger. They were so serious about keeping the Sabbath and all the rules to the point of ridiculousness, but that's how they felt. To them, it was a life and death deal, and they believed that if they kept this, that they would earn their way into the kingdom. You know, that's just the same way that cults are. That's why cults are so zealous. You know what the Sabbath was? It's a pain in the neck. It was impossible to rest for these people. You couldn't do anything. No wonder they were described as being uh, heavy laden. Um, they, They were sick to death of a system that had been imposed on them by the legalists. And the people were under this incredible burden. And now you understand what it meant when Jesus says to us, Come, all of you who are labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And, and what, uh, you know, that's what the Sabbath was supposed to be. But as far as rest was actually concerned, it was a joke. So Jesus comes along and absolutely pays no attention to any of this stuff. And it infuriates these religious leaders. And so let's look at the incidents. They're walking through the field. They pick some grain. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful in the Sabbath. Oh, these guys are moving through a field. They're hungry. They begin to pluck. They begin to eat. I don't know why we would do that. I don't know. They just do. And it's exactly what Deuteronomy 23.25 said that they had a right to do. They were not in violation of any scripture at all. They were poor. They had left their livelihood to follow Jesus. They lived by faith. They carried nothing. They had to depend upon the laws of the land, which permitted that, uh, and the kindness and the generosity of the people who fed them and cared for them. Jesus doesn't restrain them because they were already, as they were walking through the field, plucking grain, they were in line with the Old Testament scripture. And so what we have here is hair-splitting legalism, absolute asininity with no purpose. And the religious folks had buried God's law so deeply under a pile of legislative tradition that it was unbearable for people. Legalism is not simply keeping laws, but it's a self-righteous attitude. And the legalist thinks, I am righteous. And so anybody who doesn't conform with their idea of what righteousness is must be a guilty sinner. Now, I'm talking like this, and some of you, it's ringing right with you because maybe that's what you've grown up in. Maybe that's what you've witnessed. Maybe that's what you've been a part of. Keep listening. Obeying Scripture is not legalism. Rather, obeying Scripture is what we call obedience. But there will always be some people who will call you a legalist if you remind them what Scripture says. You with me? But that's not what is meant here when we talk about self-righteous legalism. We go back to our story. 
God intends the Sabbath to be rest, not excruciating hardship. The disciples, they had nothing. They traveled. They lived by faith. They took a handful of grain. They didn't violate the heart of God. And now what is taking place here, and it's beautiful because Jesus' sarcasm comes out. I love this. And he answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. But haven't you read the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you something greater than temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have consumed the innocent, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I love it. Haven't you read? Of course they've read the law. They studied the Sadducees and the Pharisees studied the law. They bathed in it. They got all these crazy rules, interpretations. And he's just saying, you guys are blockheads. He's calling them idiots. Didn't you read this? Don't you know what it means? And the implications is that, that they don't know all what it means. So Jesus now begins to teach them, you know, these three biblical texts or these incidents or principles to show them what the true meaning of Sabbath is. It's a beautiful story. Because first of all, what he does, he says the Sabbath law was never to in, intended to restrict the need of necessity. Secondly, he basically says it was never meant to restrict service to God. And thirdly, it was never meant to restrict acts of mercy. So there was purpose behind the Sabbath. The Sabbath was to bring rest. It wasn't to bring hardship. It was for us to reflect on the other nine commandments. Uh, You know, love towards God, love towards our fellow men. That's really what the Ten Commandments are all about. The first of the commandments talk about our love to God through loyalty, through faithfulness, reverence, and holiness. The second group talks about our love to fellow men through respect and purity and unselfishness and truthfulness and contentment. And this is why the whole Ten Commandments are summed up like this, that you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think Jesus said that. You know, it's, it's a love to God, and it's a love to man. Paul goes on in Romans 13, he says that, that love is the fulfilling of the law, but the Pharisees didn't have a clue about love. They just suppressed people. They intimidated people. They piled burdens on people. They were legalistic functionaries, and they were loveless. But the law of God was to permit God and man to have an ongoing love relationship and permit man and man to have an ongoing love relationship. That was the whole purpose. And so then Jesus uses the example of King David. And this was great to make his point because it really got to the Pharisees because David is their hero. And he was it. He was number one in the popularity polls. And Jesus says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Like, come on. And you go to 1 Samuel 21, you'll see that David was rejected by the people uh, as king. And so he's fleeing for his life, and he's going south to to Gibeah. Saul is chasing after him. And uh, he comes to the land of Nob, just north of Jerusalem, where the tabernacle was at the time. And he didn't have any food, and he and his men are starving. And so he went into Abimelech, who was ministering in the place of Abathar. So these high priests are changing names, uh, or places, you know, I guess one called in sick, the other guy went in, and he told him, he goes, look it, I'm hungry. 
David even goes so far and he tells the high priest a lie about the mission that he's on. But nonetheless, he told him that he was hungry. And, 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 and you know what the, the priest gave David to eat? It's called the showbread that was off the table in the tabernacle. Oh, what does all that mean? Let me tell you. Every week, the, the priests, they baked, and again, this is the law. They baked 12 loaves of bread. Each loaf was baked with about six and a half pounds of flour. So these things are huge. And there were b- big loaves. And, and I found some crazy cartoon that you can look at. I don't know how true that re- represents it, because that's more temple, and it should be actually tabernacle. But... Uh, they, they were put into two piles, six each, and each loaf represented the 12 tribes of Israel, and they were placed on the table. So every Sabbath, those loaves then would be taken off the table, and new ones would be put down. And when they were taken away, when they were taken off the table, Leviticus 24, 5 to 9, says that those loaves were to be eaten by the priests and nobody else. So the word showbread literally means bread of presence, and, uh, or the continual bread. It, was the represent- it represented God's perpetual relationship to, the, to his people. It was to be eaten only by the priests. It was, it was sacred. It was to never touch the lips of a common person, even like David. Why? Because he wasn't a priest. Still, David eats the showbread, him and his boys. What's the common parable? Well, I, I kind of think about maybe going to a Catholic church and drinking the holy water. That's, the, you know, really the only making it happen. You know, why? Because you're thirsty. Now, some people might get upset when you do that. But David and his men ate this bread. Why did God let him do it? I think that becomes the first question we have to ask. Because God never really intended any law uh, that was intended to overrule human need. God's all about loving people and meeting their needs. And what happens is that the Pharisees didn't understand this. And I love how Jesus points out that the priests themselves are breaking the Sabbath simply by working on the Sabbath. Every Sabbath, all the priests functioning on the Sabbath profaned the Sabbath. Why? Because they worked. How? They lit fires. Didn't I tell you? You weren't supposed to light a fire. But they did. It was a Sabbath. They lit fires. It's hard to have a sacrifice without a fire. They also killed the animals. It was also difficult to keep a live animal on an altar without fire. So you got to think about what's going on here. They had to light fires. They had to kill animals. They had to lift heavy stuff. Um, and again, put it on the altar that weighed more than a dried fig. So really, in the work of a priest on the Sabbath, they profaned the Sabbath all the time. Leviticus uh, numbers say that they had to do this, if you just want to check my references. Now, when I grew up as a kid, I grew up in a, in a great loving home, but fundamentalist nonetheless. And I lived in the, the day where some people still thought Sunday was Sabbath. Maybe even today that still happens. Maybe you know of people of whom I speak. Well, we couldn't watch TV. I wasn't allowed to play catch or football or shoot balls and, at nets, play hockey. And this was early on. My parents got a whole lot looser as time got on because I think I drove them absolutely crazy. You know, we had to come home and sit in our little suits all day, right, and, and have a rest, Somebody's relating with what I'm talking about. 
You can say amen or out, you're all drink to that. We'll find out. That's a whole other thing. So, you know, we couldn't do anything. We had to be holy, right? You had to be holy. Sabbath. You know, we had to be sedate. I think the word sedated was probably better, but we had to be sedate since it was supposed to be a day of rest. And so we had to just sit there. And it got to where we didn't, you don't look forward to Sunday, especially as a kid. You sit there, nothing ever happened. And I know I drove my parents crazy. And, and the irony is, but my, my dad was a pastor, so my mom and my dad had to work themselves in a frazzle all day Saturday and half a Sunday. Why? Because we always had a dinner on Sunday, and my dad had to preach, and then we had to get there early and to get, why? To get the church ready, right? We had to work to get the church ready, and the people at the church were working on Sunday, the, the Sunday school department. My dad preached his heart out all day long, two, sometimes three services on a Sunday, and then if we ate at the church, everybody was working in the basement, right? They're as working as hard as they could, but nobody ever said, you shouldn't do that on the Sabbath. Because really, we wanted to eat while we rested. And so it didn't mind making the meal. We were all for that. But we needed, we know that somebody needed to work to preach and teach. And that's really is a commentary on our culture, especially in some of our Christian cultures. You know, I, I remember growing up, you couldn't wear makeup. Not me personally, but women. <laughs> um, uh, skirts were measured, right? Uh, I went to a Bible college. The name I w- will refrain from calling it Central Pentecostal. But I, uh, there was, we, we had hair issues for men. Like you couldn't let your hair grow past your collar. I think, Joan, you went to school. Remember what I used to do? I, I have naturally curly hair. And, and when I let it go, it gets really tight. So my hair was about, about down to here. And what I used to do is I used to push it up and then hairspray it to go to, go to class. And then I would comb it out after class. The 80s rule, okay? Just work with me. It was a hairband. And um, I, I live in jeans. I love jeans. I love to be relaxed. But we had to wear dress pants to school. So again, here am I playing around the rules. And I think this, this was, you know, growing up in my environment and trying to... I'll never forget one of my parents getting so mad at me on a Sunday because I went into the garage to cut paper. And, and they found me cutting paper. You don't do that on the Sabbath. Like, and again, as a kid, you don't really understand what's going on. And yet we're breaking the Sabbath with our children every Sunday. Um, but, you know, growing up in that environment. So uh, I don't know if you remember this, but I, I had a pair of pants, dress pants that I bought that were just a little bit bigger. And so, you know, I would go out during the day, and then it was class time, and all I would do is I'd have these pants with me, and I'd run into the washroom, take them out of my bag, put them on, over top my jeans, and go and sit in class. And I remember one prof, because I crossed my legs, and you know when you cross your legs, you got one pair of jeans, and then, then your pants go up, and the prof looks at me and goes, you're wearing jeans, and I go, no, I'm wearing dress pants. Like, you know, I'm going to play your rules. It's gonna, you're going to lose. Like, there was this nothing that that they could do because you can't, you know, give me a demerit or whatever they used to do. I don't know, write you up. No, you can't because I'm wearing dress pants. You know, what I wear underneath my clothes is none of your business, but I'm wearing dress pants. You know, and, and again, you see that you still, even today, in some Christian sects, uh, S-E-C-T-S, um, stuff being acted out, and, and it's a law, and it's not mentioned in Scripture. And, and it's interesting, you know, because what really, what Jesus is saying here as we get back to Scripture is that there's service to God that actually didn't violate the whole ceremonial law. 
And the point is, is that God doesn't make the rules that force themselves to be applied over and against, which is a higher priority, and that is serving God. I work on Sundays. I know that. I work on Sundays. Sundays is a work day. Maybe somebody having heard this will accuse me. Oh, you work on the Sabbath. Well, first of all, Sabbath is Saturday, but if you're going to say Sabbath is Sunday, okay, I work on Sundays. Like, come on. And Jesus said, if you'd known what these words mean, and I love this, he's talking to the people who are so bent up with law. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would have not condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, which which I think are just beautiful words. And these words reveal the very heart of God. And Excuse me, three times God speaks these words. Back in Matthew 9, 13, he mentions it. But hundreds of years earlier in Hosea 6, 6, God says, I desire a mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. What's he saying? I wonder how many times God has to say that before we realize what he's saying is really important. Three times he tells us that he wants us to be compassionate to humankind, to help, not to judge, to rescue, not to to condemn, to get involved, not to make excuses. And God sees human need as an urgent priority. His call to minister to the marginalized must not be marginalized. His call to compassion must not be overlooked. It can't be watered down or rationalized in any matter, manner. And so Jesus, he rebukes the Pharisees for missing the point of the law, which is mercy. And the spirit of the law was life and peace with God. That was the whole intent. And at the heart of that is mercy. But they were so worked up over the cultic ritual laws that they missed the entire spirit of the law. They really didn't understand the law because they were so busy looking at the details, mostly all the prohibitions in this case. And so now these accusers are standing accused. And the accused guys, the disciples, they're actually declared innocent because the one greater than the temple was there, the Lord of the Sabbath. If you keep reading, I love what Jesus says or does in in the scripture. It says that he goes into their synagogue. I think that that's a very critical point to which Matthew's making. He's going into their synagogue. Not the synagogue, their synagogue. And uh, it's not the place where God chose to reveal himself, but it's where they make their super religious decisions and they choose to do their, their religious rituals and they make their religious rules and regulations. And so he goes into that place. He doesn't sulk away and, you know, I hope they don't come after me. No, he goes right into the synagogue. He's sort of confrontational with this. And he walks in there to give them a lesson. And it's in there that a man with a shriveled hand was there. Part of the community. But the Pharisees are looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. So they say to Jesus, like they bait him. It's, it's beautiful. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Again, question about the law. They're already losing big time. So now they go again. And Jesus comes into the middle of this. And now he begins to horrify their Sabbath. They asked, is it lawful to heal? First of all, that tells me that when you read that question, it should tell us that they believe that Jesus could heal. 
Think about it. They believe that Jesus could heal because he has been up to this point. So they believe that Jesus can heal, but it doesn't phase them. And it's amazing how blind they were. They knew he could heal. But, and, you know, where did, where did they think then he got their power for that? Well, we saw it earlier in Matthew 9, but we'll find out again later in this chapter next week that they believe he got it from Satan. They think he's demon-possessed. And they asked if it's lawful to heal the man on the Sabbath. And the reason they picked this guy with the paralyzed hand, it, 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 it's because this is not a life and death issue. See, if it was a life and death issue, they, wouldn't, they can't ask that question. Because, of course, a life and death issue, you can do that. So a guy with a paralyzed hand, somebody who's had this for a long time, it's, it's not a life and death. And, of course, the Pharisees are hoping to see if Jesus will break the religious law. And t- turns around and he says this. If any of you have a sheep and it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will you not take a hold of it and lift it out? Because that could be a life and death issue. How much more valuable... I love this. How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And so he stretched it out and was completely restored, just as sound as the other. It's like, boom. He shows up. Jesus just shows them. You know, Jesus' actions don't give me perspective by his words, but also by his, by his actions. Like, he, he, he demonstrates the truth of a loving God, loving people. He shows his authority as the creator, and if the creator, then he's also the Lord of the Sabbath. He's got it in control. And what God really wanted, demonstrated here, is a merciful heart. Because God is merciful. And if his people hunger, he wants them to be fed. And it's a beautiful lesson that Jesus is giving here, isn't it? People think Christianity is rigid and hard. No, God has given us standards without question. But he doesn't want those to overrule meeting our needs. Serving him, showing mercy, kindness, self-sacrifice, and mercy really is what God wants us to do. But he also wants an obedient heart. And the Pharisees were a million miles from that. He, he wanted mercy and and. And they don't even have a clue. And especially on the Sabbath, you know, you would think that that would be the day of all days that you would want to see needs met. You know, wouldn't you think that the Sabbath of all days, the day that we set apart to serve God, you know, that he would show up and do something beautiful. And here they are, they're walking along, serving the Lord, preaching the kingdom. These are the disciples. They're reaching people. They had to eat on the go, so to speak. They were serving God, but their needs had to be met. God wants to be merciful to them. And you would think that the Sabbath would be a perfect time for all of that. And the whole point, though, is to shock the Pharisees tried to indict Jesus, but when he's, you know, when he's done with his instructions, he's really indicted them with their hard hearts. These external legalists who didn't even know the heart of God. They were violators themselves of the Sabbath because the Sabbath was for meeting needs and for serving God, for showing mercy, and for doing acts of mercy, which these guys had no clue about. You know, what a contrast. You know, the Pharisees are criticizing and, and challenging Jesus, eventually going off and plotting to kill him. And it's, that's, you know, obviously a terrible religious state to be in when you think about it. It opposes everything that is good and merciful. You know, the point that Jesus makes is that 
that, that attitude nullifies any sacrifice or any ritual that they had been making. And his instruction is from Hosea that God desires mercy. People should be looking for objects of mercy, not objects to criticize. If they were busy with that, I'll tell you, the church would be a much better place to be. It breaks my heart when I see legalists within the Christian community just going off. Just going off. And what do they do? They... They place these unwritten rules and unwritten expectations above everything else, and we ignore the basic value of Scripture that says love God and love people. It doesn't mean we put up with a lot of their stuff, but we still need to love. You know, as I read this, Jesus encourages us to reach out to Him, especially with the men with the deformed hand. It's interesting. He reached out. It's, it's almost like there was this act of faith taking place in the synagogue. And he reached out. And in, in that process of him reaching out, he's healed and restored. And, and what Jesus is asking them is this. Do we value our religious rituals more than we value people? And I think that that's a very clear question for all of us even today. Do we put some of our twisted and warped ways of thinking in the way of showing compassion to others? What are our priorities as a church, as a community of believers? You know, that day, Jesus not only wanted to heal a deformed hand, but also he was hoping to heal spiritually disfigured hearts. Right? And they hear the enemies of Jesus, you know, they, they show that they don't desire mercy. And they, they miss the spirit of the law, which is life. And really, these people who are to represent God actually are spiritual frauds who seek power over people and over Christ. And now what do they want to do? They want to kill him. So you, you hear this, and, and we read this, and maybe you're here today, and you're not a believer, and you're pulling it all in. What does all this say to you? I'll just say this, that there are people who are caught in systems of religion, where they're trying by their own works to do what the Pharisees did. Laws upon laws, rules upon rules. And we even find this code of unwritten rules and regulations with the, the walls of evangelical or Protestant Christianity. I heard a term, I love the term. People are known as evangelically house-trained. In other words, they're people who know and enforce all the unwritten rules. And I would say that, you know, almost with any denomination, any time when people get together, there's always unwritten rules. Oh, we don't do that. You ever hear that? Oh, oh, we don't do that. Well, why? Oh, because we just, we don't do that. And you shouldn't either. Okay, okay, but why? Because we don't do that. It's like circular reasoning with a child. It just doesn't work. Unwritten rules, unwritten expectations, things that, you know, if we're going to have rules, if we're going to have, you know, let's, let's make it up. And that's why the Bible is a beautiful guideline, because the Bible is actually very clear with what sin is. Now, some of you are going to go, oh, I don't know. Yeah, well, if you do your homework, the answer is, yeah, it is. And so when the church actually stands up or when the, the preacher stands up and says, look, you know, we need to be aware of this, 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 and this, and you're affronted by that. Well, why are you affronted? Because maybe that's the something that's number one in your heart, and that's what you value. And all of a sudden, the Spirit starts speaking to you, saying you need to change what's going on in your life. 
But we don't want to hear that. Now, I don't know what system you're in. And, uh, you know, if you're trying to keep the law and if you're really, you know, maybe you're new to soul and you're just trying to keep certain laws, rules, regulations of religion, you know, even certain rules that say, if I do this, this, and this, I'll get me into God's kingdom if I just do enough. But if you only look inside your heart and you know that you're not there, you're tired of the work, you're tired of the toiling, I need to encourage you. You need to look to God because our relationship with Jesus is not about rules and regulations. He wants to give us rest. All these man-made systems, all they do is bury the heart of God under a pile of legislation. And he wants to give you something, a yoke as he called it, that is easy and a burden that is light. Secondly, Christians, why do we come here? Why do we worship? What's, what's our purpose? Are we, do we gather together because it's functional? It's something that we're supposed to do on a Sunday because we think it's our duty? Or are, or, or, are you defining true spirituality in terms of a bunch of little things of do's and don'ts? Is your relationship with God more um, function, rules, laws? Or do you realize that those things are only there to assist us? You know, the, the laws that we have, the rules, that they can never stand in the way of meeting needs, in the way of serving God, in the way of showing mercy. Because when we put those rules up there, it violates the heart of God. And some Christians are so legalistic that they literally alienate other believers. And the things they're legalistic about aren't even things that God talks about in Scripture. And some of us have grown up in that environment. Some of us have left that environment. Some of us were still in that environment. So my question this morning is, where is your heart towards God? Are you trapped in a bunch of rules, or do you know an easy yoke and a light burden? I've mentioned before numerous times that we don't just read the Bible, but the Bible reads us. You know, actually in a more powerful way, Christ's words comes and he sets us free. Genuinely and completely free. And that's the essence of the gospel, that we become compassionate and loving, and merciful. So, how are you on the mercy heart check? That, that becomes the question. Because I actually believe that that becomes a telltale sign of whether or not we're spirit-filled believers. How are you in the mercy department? So I close with this, this question this morning. Who do you identify with in this passage? If the Bible is reading you, who do you identify with in this passage? Maybe you can identify with the Pharisees. Maybe you're pretty rigid. Maybe you're intolerant. Maybe you're convinced of your own holiness. If so, Jesus has a word for you. And it's beware. Watch out. Maybe you can identify with the the person with the withered hand. You know, all God is doing is asking you to be, be obedient. Stretch out your hand. I think, you know, I, I, I got to do an aside here. 
the whole stretching out of hand of the man in the synagogue always brings me every Sunday to when we do our call to prayer and the crosses. And I meet with people, talk with people throughout the week. And my number one question, especially if they're going through hardship or if they're going through issues with their health and stuff like that, I say, do you go to the cross? No. Stretch out your hand. An act of obedience, an act of humility, an act where two or three can gather around you, begin to pray with you, begin to anoint you with oil, and ask the Lord just to step in in a divine way. But actually participating and believing what we say we believe. Well, I, I believe God can heal. Then just be obedient. Step out in faith. Let God show up. Let us walk with you. Let us pray for you. Let us celebrate you. And so if you identify with the person with the the shriveled hand, God has a word for you. And the word today is, I long to restore you. Maybe you can identify with the disciples. They watched Jesus buck the system, and that's part of what I, I see myself in. But the interesting thing is that they dared to follow God's law and mercy. And if you dare to follow God's law and mercy, the question I have for you is who needs to be the recipient of your mercy? Three very powerful questions. Who do you see yourself as in this story? Just before we go to prayer, I just want to share with you then. In January, in the 909 gathering, you saw in the video that we're starting Starting Point. Basically, that's, um, that's an alpha concept uh, where we take people who have a lot of questions about um, faith, about Jesus, and all that. Maybe some of you, uh, this would be the perfect opportunity. And we're doing it at the 909 gathering. So what we are asking people to do is that there's a limited space. We can ta- I don't think we can take more than 18 people at a time. And so what we ask you to do is, if you've got friends or even yourself or in this position where you have lots of questions about the faith, come 909, celebrate with us in our worship time, go for a quick coffee, and then you'll go upstairs into the conference room, and for the remainder of the gathering, you'll be taking part in Starting Point. It works beautifully with your time, but more importantly, it works beautifully with people who are questioning the faith. And I've had a conversation even this week where people at work are asking about Jesus and about the church and what do we believe and stuff. This is the perfect thing. Come, come with me. We're going to go. You'll see a little bit of music. We'll have some coffee. And then we go to go a room with a bunch of other people. And it's all about questions. And, and it's a safe place to ask. And, and we'll answer the questions to the best of our ability. That's what it's about. It's about all of us reaching out and doing our best to impact the world and to make a difference in the world in which God has placed us. And we are trying to work within your timetable and your time frame and not to give you another, um, another night of the week where you have to do something. But it also provides childcare at the same time because then your kids are in our children's ministry area and we're instructing them. And if they have kids, we're looking after their kids. We need you to grab hold of that vision. Let's change this world. Let's do it together. 
And let's be the difference that God has put upon us in the world that he has placed us. You with me? Stand with me. Let's pray. Lord, you're so good and we know what we deserve. And you are so good and kind to pass our transgressions, our sins, and um, to set aside your law and your discretion for mercy's sake. And we do know, we know as we open scripture that you've given us principles and, and we seek to obey them. And they're designed to reveal to us your heart and to never stand in the way of you revealing yourself in any way, shape, or form. So help us to have the sensitivity to walk in the spirit, to, to know how to respond to the things that you've placed, your ordinances, with freedom, with liberty, and, and uh, to represent you with a merciful heart towards the people that you've placed us with. God, my prayer is that you would save people from systems that bury you under a pile of rules. And now as we leave this place, are you checking our hearts because we're far and hard from you? Are you speaking to our hearts in terms of opening up and reaching out towards you? Are you opening our eyes to those who need to be recipients of your mercy through us? So challenge us. Speak to us. Enable us by the power of your spirit to go now into the world in which you've placed us and make a difference. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. As you go, soul sanctuary, may God go with you into this week. And may God grant you, moment by moment, the enjoyment of his presence, a sensitivity to the promptings of his Holy Spirit, an awareness of the rich provision he has made for you and may you live victoriously hopefully today and forevermore now go be the church see you next week